Good evening, dear students, interns. I, Kamak Shivasan, Chief Operating Officer, the Lothama Foundation. Welcome you all today to the one-month course and practical internship on international relations and diplomacy at the Talotma Foundation. The Lothama Foundation works globally on diverse subjects of international relations, strategic and science policy, gender, defense, and area studies. Today, we'll have a special session on a very relevant subject, diplomacy and international law. It will be addressed by Mr. Soham Das, Chairperson and Director, Tilotma Foundation. Thank you, Mr. Das, for being here. So, within the international society, law and diplomacy have always been complementary and interdependent. Diplomacy is the art and practice of conducting negotiations between representatives of states. It usually refers to international diplomacy, conduct of international relations through the meditation of professional diplomat with regard to a full range of topical issues. Whereas international law is the set of rules generally regarded and accepted binding in relations between states and different nations. It serves framework for the practice of stable and organized international relations. Of course, Mr. Das will speak in length about this. Now, I would request Mr. Das to start with today's session. Over to you, Mr. Das. Thank you so much. Hello, everybody. All the students and interns who have joined, I know you are part of this one month course on diplomacy and international relations. That is being conducted by the Foundation and uh, Ms. Watson, who is uh, the director of academic programs of the Fukuma Foundation, have been uh, conducting these sessions and the various uh, other practical components uh, of this internship. Uh, so today we have a very important topic to discuss, uh, on which, of course, you have had one session in the uh, previous week, the first week, uh, where you got. Uh, understanding of how diplomacy plays out, particularly in the context of uh, a conflict. Uh, the Ukraine-Russia war was discussed at length uh, the previous day by uh, Ambassador Ashur Malotra. So today we will uh, try to understand diplomacy and uh, as well as uh, international law. First of all, it is very important to understand uh, the role of diplomacy uh, for us, any state. So diplomacy plays an important role in the furtherance of the foreign policy goals. A state can have a series of uh, goals uh, in its uh, foreign as well as security policy and diplomacy is one of the means, just like uh, military uh, action is one of the means. Diplomacy is also one of the means uh, for furtherance of uh, national interest, uh, national uh, goals, strategic goals, etc. Diplomacy often works through persuasions, through negotiations, through compromise. But at the core of it, the very basic role of diplomacy, for that we need to understand that there is an international system where there are many states and these states need to maintain relationships among themselves. And Diplomacy plays this most important role. And this is the most ancient role of diplomacy. Since ancient times, states have, or kingdoms in those times, or empires have maintained relationships among themselves, often by sending ambassadors. So these 
maintenance of relationship, maintenance of foreign relationship is the most basic task of diplomacy. So that is in common parlance if we speak to anybody in layman's language, diplomacy means the way relationships are maintained with foreign nations. So that's the basic of the, uh, concept of diplomacy. Now, of course, with time, with uh, development of the international system, uh, today it is a much more complex phenomenon. There, there are a lot of components to it that have been added, but we will try to go step by steps so that we understand how the whole framework works. So the idea of this today's lecture would be to understand the very uh, basic components of how the entire diplomatic framework works. So let's begin uh, with one central uh, or key person in this diplomatic framework, that is the ambassador. Now, the ambassador is the representative of a sending state to the receiving state. Now, suppose there is an ambassador of the Republic of India to the United States of America. The ambassador is the representative of the Republic of India to the United States of America. That is the main role of the ambassador. Now, certain ambassadors are called extraordinary and plenipotentiary. Ambassador extraordinary and plenipotentiary. Now, when an ambassador is called extraordinary and plenipotentiary, and of course, in these days, most ambassadors are extraordinary and plenipotentiary because what it means is that the ambassador has been directly sent by the head of the state of that government, of that particular state. So extraordinary and plenipotentiary ambassador is regarded as the direct representative of the president of that state or the head of state of that a particular uh, state from which he or she comes. So that is how when the receiving state interacts with the ambassador, the ambassador represents his government or her government, represents the sending state. His words, his views, his arguments are arguments of the sending state. So when the ambassador of the Republic of India goes and meets the president of the United States or the secretary of state of the United States, he or she represents the views of the government of India and also the prime minister of India, the head of the government of India. He or she represents the views, the arguments, and uh, the standpoints of India and the Indian government. So that is the principal role of an ambassador to represent, to effectively represent his or her government. So that's one part. Now we will go to the understanding of the embassy and how an embassy works. So uh, these, these are very uh, practical aspects that needs to be understood. So if you go into an embassy, there are uh, diverse uh, kinds of people that are there. So when I say going into an embassy, so embassy is, uh, in almost all cases, embassy is, a, is an area, is, is, is a location, it's a premises. Now, these aspects are very important when we think of the diplomatic uh, setup. So an embassy is essentially a premises of the sending government or the sending state in the receiving state. So we will have an embassy, let's say, of uh, the Federal Republic of Germany in India. So there will be a German embassy. Now, that space that we call embassy, which will, of course, be at the capital of that uh, receiving state. So it will be New Delhi in India. So in New Delhi, you will have a German embassy, you will have a Russian embassy, you will have a Chinese embassy, you will have a Brazilian embassy. So all these countries will have their embassies. Now this space that we call an embassy, this is the 
this is the explicit uh, space. This is the, the, the exclusive space of that uh, sending government. So within that space, the laws of that particular government operate, not the laws of the receiving state within and the premises of the mission is largely inviolable. So we'll, we'll come to that later. So, so let's just try to understand that, you know, when we think of, uh, you know, a, a particular ambassador, the ambassador works from the embassy. Now, the embassies are located at the capital city. So this much, I think, uh, let's try to understand it. So we have to understand, first of all, is that from the host, from the sending government, ambassadors are being sent to the receiving state. And in the receiving state, in the capital city of the receiving state, let's say for India, it is New Delhi, Beijing in case of China, Moscow in case of Russia. Uh, so these are there. So in these capital cities, the embassies will be located. Now that is not all. In many cases, apart from the embassy in the capital city, there are other diplomatic presence of the sending state. And these diplomatic presence in other cities, which are not capital cities, are called consuls or consulates. These are called consulates. So in these consulates, uh, there is these consulates are usually headed by a consul general or a consul or a vice consul. And these are also uh, diplomatic premises. So there is, there you will have, let's say, uh, in, in Atlanta in the United States, there is a Indian uh, consulate. There's an Indian consulate in Chicago. So, so there are these uh, presence, uh, which is not, you know, these are not headed by the ambassador. The ambassador will, of course, be there in Washington, D.C. But in, in Atlanta or in Chicago, you will find the Indian consul general in these uh, particular locations in particular cities. So the, the objective of the entire diplomatic staff in different parts of the receiving state from the sending state is to further the diplomatic objectives they have been provided, to maintain friendly relations, to develop ties, to work on diverse areas of cooperation. It can be uh, military cooperation, it can be trade ties, it can be cultural ties. So this is the principal objective uh, that with that uh, the diplomatic staff are sent uh, to a particular uh, country. Now, we have to understand there are very technical aspects. So this is how I was explaining the practical part. Now, technically, uh, an embassy is also called a mission. So you have to understand it is like a mission. The head of the, uh, the government or the head of the state of the sending state is sending a mission. Or we can also think of the government or the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is sending a mission from a receiving from the sending state to the receiving state. So this mission uh, that we just now described that it has a premises, it has a physical premises, which we call the embassy. This has to be headed by a head of the mission. Now, usually the head of the mission is the ambassador. As we discussed, the ambassador is often extraordinary and plenipotentiary, meaning that person bears the direct, uh, you know, a letter from the head of the state of his own government, which shows that, you know, uh, he's the direct representative. So for example, if uh, let's say there's an ambassador of India to Finland, the ambassador of India to Finland will bear a letter signed by the Honorable President of India with his seal and with his sign to and he or she will present it to the President of Finland. So this is how the ambassador of India is ambassador extraordinary and plenipotentiary representing the President of India and taking that credentials, that copy of credentials and presenting it to the president of Finland. So that is how the head of the mission in that case will be the ambassador. Now, ambassador is a rank. We have to understand this. Ambassador, although all uh, diplomats, there are 
diplomats and they're, 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 you know, they're representing, the, all of them can be called, uh, they are representing their uh, sending state, but there are ranks. So at the top of the order is an ambassador. An ambassador uh, enjoys the highest privileges and is the highest uh, level of official representative uh, from, the, from the sending state to the receiving state and who heads a mission. So this is how there's the ambassador. And below that, there can be a, an envoy or a minister counselor or a minister, an envoy and minister. Now, uh, just to clarify, this minister is not the minister like we have in the government. This is a diplomatic position called minister, often also called minister counselor. So this minister are, is in the second position of who can head a mission. And the third position who can head a mission is a charge the affairs. Now, when why do we need? So basically the level of representative heading the mission has to do, a lot to do with the diplomatic relations between the two countries. So if there is not a very good relationship between the two countries, there might not be an ambassador present, there might be an envoy present, there might be a minister counselor present, there might even be a charge the affairs present. So just to give you some context, in Islamabad, India does not have an ambassador. India does not even have an envoy. What India has is a charge day affairs. So that means the ties, the bilateral ties between India and Pakistan are not doing that well now. And that is why you have an Indian charge day affairs in Pakistan, whereas in other states like the United States or the United Kingdom, we have the full rank of an Indian ambassador or an Indian high commissioner. Now, of course, high commissioners, we say high commissioner when uh, we, uh, you know, a representative is sent to, an ambassador is sent to a commonwealth nation. So within the Commonwealth, when representatives are sent from one Commonwealth country to another, we call it High Commissioner, like from India to Bangladesh. There's a Bangladesh. In Bangladesh, there will be an Indian High Commissioner. Uh, and in India, we have a Bangladesh High Commissioner. Similarly, we don't call consul generals. We call them Deputy High Commissioner. Uh, so in different cities you will have in India, you can have in, let's say, in Chennai or Kolkata, you will have uh, uh, the Deputy High Commissioner, the British Deputy High Commissioner, or the Bangladesh Deputy High Commissioner. So this is how, in case of Commonwealth countries, we don't use the same terminology. We don't call ambassadors ambassador. We call them high commissioner. We don't call consul general, but we say deputy high commissioner. So that's how it uh, works. Anyway, uh, coming back to the question of uh, Pakistan. So that is why with Pakistan, we have a charged affairs level of relationship. So in diplomacy, these small things, these, uh, these terminologies, these ranks, these have great significance. These have great connotations. When it comes to the level of uh, diplomatic ties, its level of uh, bilateral relations between two countries. Of course, uh, we will, of course, getting a bit ahead uh, also because uh, we will talk about international law later. But in this point, we need to also look at uh, two uh, international conventions. Of course, the diplomatic uh, uh, relationships are governed largely by these two conventions. Now, of course, as I have told you earlier, there has been a long-standing custom since ancient times, whereas ambassadors or representatives have always been respected. There has been a long-standing uh, convention, even during warfare, that you usually, in ordinary circumstances, you should not uh, you know, uh, kill or attack the envoy, the ambassador, you know, who is bringing, who is just uh, the messenger. So, you know, like let's, the saying goes, do not shoot the messenger. So, you know, messengers have always been protected. There's been a custom that uh, messengers, whether they bring a word of peace or word of war, you know, uh, the messenger itself should not be attacked. The messenger himself or herself should not be attacked. So 
that is how uh, it largely works. But in, in the in the in the in the modern era, uh, two conventions, uh, two important conventions have been formulated and passed. Uh, these are the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations of uh, 1961 and the Vienna Convention on Consular Relations, 1963. Of course, uh, the second convention that I told, Vienna Convention on Consular Relations, 1963, largely deals with consuls and consulates. And so it, it's, it's, its approach or its ambit is uh, limited to consulates and consuls. So it governs the way uh, the receiving state treats uh, the consuls, uh, the staff of a consulate, and the various other uh, information and the various other aspects of the whole consulate operating in the uh, receiving state. Uh, of course, the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations deals with uh, the whole array of uh, diplomatic activities related to uh, the ambassador, the embassy in uh, the receiving state and what kind of privileges they enjoy, what are the responsibilities uh, that they have. Of course, uh, there are certain important uh, standpoints, there are certain important uh, principles that we must uh, remember in this case. One of that is uh, that of diplomatic immunity. Of course, all diplomats, all diplomats who are part of the diplomatic staff from a receiving state, uh, from a sending state to a receiving state, for instance, let's say from Bangladesh to India or from uh, Brazil to India, let's say from Brazil to India, if we have, uh, if we, let's take, uh, let's say there's the embassy of Brazil in India, and within that embassy, you have an ambassador, you have uh, the various uh, other staff. Of course, this includes uh, the counselors. There are cultural counselors. There is uh, often there is the first secretary, there is the second secretary, there is the third secretary. There are of course also military attaches, trade attaches. Military attaches are often there when there is a, a strong uh, military relationship uh, at the bilateral level, and so uh, military attaches help in discussing the particularities of uh, such uh, ties and to furtherance of uh, these uh, kind of uh, transactions and these kind of agreements that take place. So uh, he or she is a specialized staff who is uh, focused only on uh, the military aspects uh, of the bilateral ties. So there are uh, diverse uh, kinds of uh, diplomatic staff in any embassy. Now, all these staff, they enjoy diplomatic immunity, meaning they cannot be arrested or detained while they are performing official functions. During their performance of the official functions, they cannot be arrested or detained. So they enjoy diplomatic protection and diplomatic immunity. So basically, it is the responsibility of the receiving state, not only that they themselves do not arrest them, that they themselves do not detain them, but also to ensure that these particular diplomatic staff are protected, that they are not attacked by any third person. They are not uh, faced by any, let's say, terrorist attacks or other kinds of attacks. So it is the responsibility of the receiving state to ensure the protection of the embassy, as well as, of course, uh, the consulates uh, that is provided in the uh, Vienna Convention on Consular Relations 1963. Uh, the Vienna Convention on uh, Diplomatic Relations, uh, 1961. In fact, uh, you know, uh, it's Article 29, among other spaces, as I told you, it's a, it has been a long-standing uh, custom as well that uh, the diplomatic staff will enjoy diplomatic immunity. They cannot be subject to any kind of arrests. So this includes even when, even when the receiving state is not happy 
with the kind of activities that uh, these uh, diplomatic staff are doing. So even if you do not agree with it, even if you do not like it, you do not have uh, the authority to arrest these people, which is not uh, acceptable within international law as per this uh, Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations 1961 to sort of arrest them, to sort of detain them or, you know, put them under any kind of uh, interrogation, etc. So what can a receiving state do if it feels that uh, this particular diplomatic staff is doing something that they cannot tolerate or they are not? So if they are unhappy with the performance of a diplomatic staff, what they can do is, as per Article 9 of the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations 1961, they can declare a diplomatic staff as persona non grata. Now, this is a very important concept. They can declare a diplomatic staff who otherwise enjoys diplomatic immunity as persona non grata. Now, once a person has been declared persona non grata, it is the responsibility of that person and as, as well as the sending state to take that person back to his own country or at least remove him from that particular receiving state. So that's what uh, a particular uh, country, a particular, uh, the receiving state can do. In fact, there are other uh, options also sometimes, and this has been done in the recent past as well, that uh, a particular receiving state can in fact expel uh, diplomats. Of course, they cannot arrest them or interrogate them or uh, detain them, but they can expel them. They can force them to leave uh, their country. They can expel them. That's something they can do. And uh, so this is the kind of uh, protection uh, that, that, that uh, the, uh, the, the embassy or, or, or more importantly, the ambassador and the diplomatic staff enjoys. Now, what kind of, as I also told you, that there is the importance that uh, the diplomatic staff must be protected. With that, there is also, you know, the Article 22 of the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations 1961 also provides that, you know, uh, that the premises of the embassy is inviolable. As I have told you earlier also, that that particular premises is very important because, you know, that premises cannot be violated. I mean, just like in, in, in ordinary cases, the local law enforcement, whether it is police or in certain cases, let's say some kind of a, a military action, uh, it can, some kind of a local law enforcement action, whatever action it might be, they some, sometimes can search buildings, they some kind, sometimes can go into a building and arrest people, uh, just like it happens in case of normal buildings, you know, you get a warrant, you go inside a building, arrest a person, things like that. But in, under no circumstances can the receiving state violate the premises of the mission. So without the permission of the head of the mission, the receiving state cannot enter the premises of the mission. So no matter the circumstances, even if there is, let's say, a, a pending court order, let's say there is, there, is, there is arrest warrant, no matter what the circumstances are, you cannot enter a particular embassy or consulate without the permission of the sending state. So this is the reason, uh, it is because of this uh, particular legal provision that we sometimes see uh, the usage of uh, the facility of diplomatic protection or uh, as you have seen in, I mean uh, in certain cases uh, certain individuals 
are provided ref provided refuge in the embassies or in the consuls. Ecuador is very famous regarding this. Uh, they have been providing uh, you know, refuge to certain individuals whom they can, uh, let's say uh, there is there is, there is, a, there is a arrest warrant or, or, the, or the forces are searching for a person inside London, but they can just keep this person within the embassy of, of uh, let's say, Ecuador and the police or the forces cannot enter the embassy to arrest that person because the embassy is inviolable. So this is how, uh, you know, uh, diplomatic uh, refugee, a political refuge is granted uh, to certain individuals. So this is largely how uh, I think, uh, you know, uh, certain privileges, certain immunities have been granted to the diplomatic staff in order to ensure that they can effectively fulfill their duty fearlessly. This is especially important when uh, two countries are having tumultuous ties. There are tensions between the two countries. If these provisions were not there, the brunt of such uh, tensions might come on uh, the diplomatic staff working from uh, working in both the countries from either of the countries. So, you know, they can face uh, persecution, they can face attacks, uh, they can be arrested, but this is not, this cannot happen because of this uh, conventions which are uh, by and large respected by all the nations. So this is uh, the protection uh, that is granted not only to the diplomatic staff, but also to the premises of the mission, whether it is an embassy or a consulate. Now we will come to the question of uh, that these the ambassadors, we have been so far been discussing ambassadors only being sent uh, to a state, a receiving state, a sending state. But apart from that, a particular representative, also called a permanent representative, are often sent uh, to international organizations. As I told you that with time, uh, things have developed. Earlier days, there used to be only states and kingdoms and empires. But these days, uh, we also have international organizations and multilateral organizations, regional organizations. So the states often send their permanent representatives, of course, to, let's say, uh, the UN in New York, the UN in Geneva. They send uh, to the UNESCO. They send to international organizations, multilateral organizations, let's say, the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, let's say the European Union, you can send uh, representatives, permanent representatives, etc., to these international organizations. So that is another way of how uh, an, an, an ambassador represents his or her country, not only at a, tour, a receiving state, but also at international organizations or regional organizations or multilateral organizations. So this is uh, another uh, addition to the uh, the responsibilities of uh, the diplomats. Now we will discuss uh, two types of uh, diplomacy. Of course, uh, we have, uh, yeah, previously, I think there was also some mention of it. Uh, cultural diplomacy. Now, cultural diplomacy, of course, uh, now we, we, are, we are now moving away from, uh, so far we are discussing uh, the, the, the structure and the, the legal protections that are granted uh, to an embassy or a consulate. But now we will go largely to the, the kind of role that uh, any embassy plays. Of course, we are not discussing so much the major political role that we just discussed, you know, uh, to, to 
to discuss with the host government, the receiving state, uh, the, the ties, the bilateral ties, etc. That's the principal responsibility of the embassy uh, to maintain relationship with the receiving government, uh, you know, to put forward the views uh, and to discuss the various aspects of the bilateral ties to strengthen it. So that part is there. But apart from that, there's also the cultural diplomacy. Whereas uh, a country uh, representatives, the country's missions across the world uh, promote their culture. And they are basically promoting their own country through the culture. Uh, so uh, one example would be, you know, on the 21st of June, every year we celebrate uh, the International uh, Yoga Day. Uh, you know? And so this uh, yoga is an important uh, form of, uh, you know, uh, a cultural uh, aspect of India's identity. And, you know, this is uh, widely celebrated by Indian missions across the world. You know? uh, so, you know, the Indian missions would uh, organize these events, you know, whereas they would showcase yoga, they would have yoga sessions. And it's an important uh, opportunity to not only better exhibit India's culture, but also at uh, greater uh, communications, outreach and connections uh, with the local uh, the local population as well as the Indian diaspora that is there. Now, of course, diaspora is very important for India in Indian case because we have a huge uh, diaspora living all over the world because of India's huge population. We have a huge number of people living everywhere. But uh, largely for many other states, uh, this also means uh, you know spreading their own culture, uh, that country's culture to the people living in their country apart from the diaspora. So for instance, you know, if, uh, if let's say the, the Spanish embassy in India is organizing events on uh, on Spanish culture. It is meant to, to you know, uh, spread the word about Spanish culture to more Indians. So it's like that. So cultural diplomacy uh, basically, you know, uses uh, various aspects of uh, uh, cultural identity of the nation. It can be, uh, it can be through movies, it can be through uh, any kind of activity, any kind of activity like yoga, you know, it, uh, which we can also say it's like traditional medicine uh, procedure or something like that. So, you know, it, it can be diverse ways. It can be uh, through literature, it can be through music, it can be through art, uh, paintings, etc. So any aspect of this, uh, the cultural identity, which can be used to represent the nation. For instance, if you are having an exhibition on Indian dance forms, Indian traditional dance forms, Bharatanatyam, Kuchipudi, Kathak, etc., and, you know, through that, we also show the diversity of the India and that India is a land uh, with a diverse culture and you know, with great cultural heritage. And so, you know, it, it can also kind of uh, promote uh, tourism in India, let's say. So, you know, these, uh, these are the objectives of cultural diplomacy. Now, related to this is an important aspect which has been in discussion in recent times is the concept of public diplomacy. Public diplomacy, as I just said, it, is, it's, it, it of course includes cultural diplomacy as well. But by public diplomacy, we basically mean the way a particular mission, or we can even think of broadly as, 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 the, receiving, as the sending state itself, you know, through its uh, missions, uh, through its uh, various other cultural centers across the world, whatever means, it is uh, communicating its foreign outreach to publics in these countries. So the way it promotes itself, the way it promotes uh, its own values, its own ideas, its own culture across the world. So, for instance, we can say uh, the way that the way, uh, let's say, you know, the coordinated events across the world uh, on, on, on the yoga day is a way, you know, Indian culture is promoted uh, by the Indian government across the world, you know, and, and uses this opportunity to sort of uh, 
make more people aware about uh, the cultural heritage of India. So that's how it's another aspect of uh, public diplomacy is nation branding. How you utilize uh, these occasions or in general, what steps you take uh, through your missions to properly brand your nation. Let's say a certain nation, uh, let's say, let's say Maldives would like to promote its tourism. So it can, uh, you know, uh, organize a series of events through its embassies across the world, uh, promoting its tourism and, you know, inviting uh, people from these countries to visit Maldives as tourists. So that can be these activities, this is the nation branding. So, you know, it can, let's say, promote itself that Maldives as, as a nation that is very friendly for tourists, okay? The other aspect that is also part of public diplomacy, uh, which is often sometimes in, in slightly uh, negative context is the propaganda. Uh, a particular nation can use uh, its uh, missions, etc., uh, you know, uh, or through other means uh, of public diplomacy to spread propaganda, to spread uh, certain information the way it needs to show. If, you know, it can push its uh, perspective. It can be regarding a war, for instance, it wants to convince the people of another country that, you know, the war that it's fighting is just and, you know, it is fighting against, uh, you know, its uh, objectives in the war are more justified uh, than its uh, opponent. So, you know, this kind of uh, role is also played uh, through public diplomacy. So uh, public diplomacy has diverse components and, you know, it is utilized uh, by different countries uh, for different fields. Of course, uh, any embassy or any mission, they maintain strong ties with the local community that they, they try to, you know, interact with the local uh, civil society organizations, non-governmental organizations, cultural organizations. They try to organize events, they organize uh, dinners, they organize uh, seminars, they organize a lot of events, uh, you know, in order to uh, get uh, better outreach, in order to reach out to the people, you know. Uh, their, their, their principal objective of uh, an, an, an embassy, apart from you know maintaining uh, political ties with the receiving state, is also maintaining cultural ties, maintaining people-to-people -people contacts with uh, the people of the receiving state. And for that regard, they take various measures, which includes uh, you know interacting and collaborating with the non-state actors. So by and large, you know in in in, in contemporary times, non-state actors, whether it be international organizations, whether it be non-governmental organizations, companies, charitable organizations, these also have increasingly important role within the sphere of diplomacy. For instance, uh, the activities of public diplomacy may be coordinated by a particular uh, mission through non-governmental organizations. So uh, non-governmental organizations, uh, through their partnerships, through their collaborations with uh, the governmental uh, bodies are also uh, part of uh, diplomacy uh, these days. So largely, uh, we have been, uh, you know, through this discussion, we have tried to, uh, you know, identify uh, what are the basic uh, features, the salient features of an embassy. Uh, of course, you have been able to identify it, but let me just uh, go through that again, that you know, an embassy will have a premises, an embassy will have a head of a mission, an embassy will have staff. Now, the head of the mission can be ambassador, it can be 
uh, a minister or an envoy, it can be a charged offense. And of course, as I told you, it depends on the kind of relationship uh, between the two states. Also, sometimes you know there's there's there's, there's a gap. You know, sometimes uh, a, a good ambassador may not be available. I mean, the, there is often you know shortage of diplomatic staff, and so for let's say for 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 a short duration, sometimes instead of an ambassador, you have uh, let's say let's say a particular minister, councillor, or a charged affairs, you know, being the head of the uh, mission. This has happened uh, with the U.S. embassy in India, as well as uh, several other uh, embassies. You know, for short durations, these have been headed by uh, charged affairs. But this does not mean that the diplomatic ties between the two nations have been affected. So this may be due to uh, non-availability of uh, proper diplomatic staff or you know, non-appointment of uh, the diplomatic uh, staff as the ambassador. Like, for instance, in the case of the United States, it's the president of the United States who appoints uh, somebody as the ambassador to any country. So, you know, unless the president appoints somebody as the ambassador, of course, the post of the president ambassador will uh, remain vacant. And in that case, uh, somebody can be sent in as a as a charge DFS. So, that's largely it. Now. Uh, other aspects are, of course, that you know you have uh, the diplomatic immunity, which I just told you that you know the the person of the diplomatic staff they cannot be violated, uh, they cannot be arrested, they cannot be detained, they cannot be interrogated. What can be done is uh, they can be declared as persona non grata, or uh, they can be expelled from the state. So these are the two things usually. Expel, expulsion is an extreme step, which uh, most of the uh, times it doesn't happen. Expulsion shows uh, very unusual state, very critical stage in diplomatic ties. Uh, often happens when there is a conflict going on. But usually, uh, more uh, prevalent uh, procedure is with the declaration of persona non grata, whereby uh, the receiving state just declares a person as persona non grata and it is the onus of the sending state to take that person back. So uh, this is how it is. Also, let me uh, explain to you, as I have told you earlier, uh, in the context of when I was explaining the way uh, an ambassador is sent by the president, etc. So not necessarily that all ambassadors will uh, be sent by the president, stuff like that. But uh, in general, when an ambassador goes from a sending state to a receiving state, this whole procedure we have to understand the role of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So now we will discuss the role of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, uh, or whatever names, like for India, it is called the Ministry of External Affairs, certain, but mostly the, the common terminology is Ministry of Foreign Affairs. It's, it's broadly the same. So the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of any state coordinates which person goes as ambassadors where, I mean, often it is decided by the government, but, but it is largely the coordination is, the whole process is coordinated by the uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs. So once a person who has been appointed as the ambassador reaches uh, the receiving stage, let's say somebody comes from Germany to India, the person will be, you know, the coordinated, the person will be coordinated with by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of India. Now this person will have to submit his credentials. Now, in certain cases, the submission of credentials can be to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs or the submission of credentials can be to directly to the head of the state. Like in case of India, 
many a times uh, or in most cases the ambassadors present their credentials to the president of india so they bring in their letter of credentials which basically says that this said individual which is the official representative of whatever state that person comes from let's say he comes from the democratic republic of congo so the government of democratic republic of congo will give him a letter saying this person is the ambassador of the democratic republic of congo to the republic of india this letter by the officials which with the official seal and signature will be presented to the president of india by the said ambassador now when that is done now that person has submitted his credential and is accredited as an ambassador so this is called the accreditation process so when you submit your credentials this is an important part so the whole procedure is coordinated by the minister of foreign affairs now of course in in, in india also as you see uh, there is the protocol uh, department or the protocol division of the ministry of external affairs who coordinates the whole procedure in fact if you go to the mea website you will see that uh, there's a there's a there's a protocol division uh, section where you will get the details the address the official telephone number and the name of the ambassadors or the envoy in fact basically the heads of mission of all the countries who have a diplomatic presence in india so that's largely uh, how the whole procedure works i think uh, once we have uh, discussed uh, about diplomacy of course we'll uh, we can go at length when you ask the questions let us come to international law now we have already uh, made a lot of reference to international law uh, we have discussed international law because we discussed the convention etc but what is international law international law is the laws that operate at the international level that have to do with international states international organizations as parties so laws that operate above the national level at the international level are broadly called international law now by no means is it a unified system it does not have a proper structure so by definition international law seems a bit problematic because of one single concept and that is the concept of sovereignty of states now i think all of you are familiar or if you are not i will discuss with the sovereignty of states states are sovereign we know that even in the indian constitution it says the republic of india is a sovereign state what do you mean by it is a sovereign sovereign means a state has the supreme authority to decide its own internal policy as well as its own external policy now when something or some organization or some state when you call something as sovereign it is given that that person is not subservient or that organization or that body is not subservient to anything now the very definition of following a law means that you have to be subservient to the law or you have to at least you know fall within the within the ambit of that law now by sovereignty means you are beyond the ambit of laws that's what sovereignty means like uh, individuals are not sovereign companies organizations groups operating within a state are not sovereign they are governed by uh, the rules or the law of the land let's say in india everybody is under the constitution of india so everybody who is operating in india whether it is an organization whether it is an individual has to follow the constitution of india but states they are sovereign so that is why 
international law becomes problematic and it becomes problematic principally also because there is no enforcement agencies as such. I mean, uh, like in, in case of municipal law, of course, you know that law is basically of two types. One is the municipal law that is that operates within a state and international law that operates uh, within the states uh, or let's say between the states. Uh, so uh, unlike municipal law where, you know, a, a judge can, let's say, uh, you know, he, a judge has the age of the police forces or other law enforcement forces. So, you know, if you don't, uh, if they say the judge sends you a, a, you know, a, a notice to appear before the court and you do not appear, the judge can direct the police to arrest you and bring, uh, make you appear before the court. The judge can take, uh, you know, uh, measures, the judge can take uh, action because uh, he or she has uh, uh, police power or other kinds of, uh, you know, constraining power that uh, that he or she has as the judge within a municipal system. But this is unavailable in, uh, in the international system. And that is why international law does not operate uh, like the municipal law. Since ancient times, international law has mostly bent customs, just like I told you the custom regarding that ambassadors should not be killed. But even if in certain cases an ambassador was killed, there wasn't much you could do about it. But it was widely respected, largely respected. And another was respect for treaties and agreements. So this is a very important step. So this is the major uh, concept when understanding international law is the concept of treaties and agreements. So treaties and agreements have been signed since ancient times. So when two states, they signed a treaty, they signed an agreement, uh, these generally meant that they would follow that uh, treaty, they would follow that convention. And when they did not follow it led to war, obviously. But so this, this tradition of following treaties has come to the modern era as well. And it has been widely respected and regarded that when a state signs something, when a state signs a treaty or an agreement or a convention, that state has an obligation under international law to follow that particular treaty. So if you are party to a treaty that says, uh, you know, you would, uh, let's say, uh, you know, uh, limit your nuclear weapons uh, to a certain level, you must do so because you have signed the treaty. So that is how treaties operate. So, you know, you have to fulfill your treaty obligations. So treaties come with obligations and the states are obligated to follow those uh, obligations. So broadly, treaties and agreements must be respected. So if you look at it, all these uh, organizations, all the international organizations, the basis of them is a treaty. For instance, to become the member of the United Nations, all the members of the UN have signed the UN treaty, have signed the UN charter. The UN charter, by signing onto the UN charter, you agree that you will follow the very basic uh, standpoints or the very basic principles that are enshrined in the Indian uh, in the uh, UN Charter. So the UN Charter gives certain basic directives that are followed by UN members. So that forms the basis. And why do the states follow the uh, UN Charter? Because they signed it. When they become members of the uh, UN uh, organization, United Nations organization, UNO, they signed the Charter. So all member states of the UN have signed the UN Charter. So if you sign a charter, you follow it. Just like, you know, India has not signed certain nuclear treaties. 
nuclear non-proliferation treaties. The reason India did not sign it was India did not want to follow the obligations mentioned in those treaties. So when you don't like the obligations of a particular treaty, you don't sign it. But if you sign, you follow it. That's largely the way international law operates. But of course, we will go in depth into this, that you know, it is not necessary that all the states would follow what the international uh, international treaties say. For instance, the international uh, the, the UN Charter very clearly talks about uh, you know respect for territorial sovereignty, etc. But many UN uh, member states have violated uh, territorial sovereignty of other states. So this happens uh, from time to time. Let's, but before we go into that, uh, let's also talk a bit about how are these international uh, agreements or international uh, law being enforced? Are there any courts as such? Well, there are mainly uh, two courts that we will uh, talk about today. Uh, one is the International Court of Justice. Uh, this was actually uh, the permanent court of international justice, you know, uh, that was formed during uh, the League of Nations, of course, all of you are aware of the League of Nations. It was an international organization formed after the uh, the Second World or the First World War, and you know, of course, United States was not a member of that organization, and it didn't succeed uh, that much. But uh, that organization laid important, uh, you know, found, founding, uh, you know, uh, important pathways. You know, it laid those pathways that helped uh, later. Uh, for the United Nations organization to develop. So similarly, the Permanent Court of International Justice was uh, formed in 1920, and you know, uh, it was uh, it, it was this uh, court uh, whose successor is the present International Court of Justice, which is at the Hague. And you know, uh, this particular uh, Court of Justice, International Court of Justice, of course, it's a it's a, it's part of the United Nations organization. Uh, and you know any member states and even non-member states. Of course, uh, all member states are a party to its uh, decisions. All member states are uh, you know are obligated to follow the judgments of the International Court of Justice. So you know in, in some cases, if you feel that you are unhappy with the situation, you want the intervention of the International Court of Justice, you can approach the International Court of Justice. Uh, of course, all of you are familiar. Uh, in certain cases, uh, recently, I think uh, in the case of uh, Kulbushan Yadav regarding uh, with Pakistan where the Pakistan wanted to uh, give him death sentence or uh, uh, India approached uh, the International Court of Justice. And, you know, so, so you know, if, if you're unhappy with certain situations, if you want immediate intervention, uh, you can approach uh, the International uh, Court of Justice. So that is one part. Another is the permanent Court of Arbitration. So permanent Court of Arbitration is basically just, uh, it, it, it basically deals with uh, disputes arising out of treaties. I mean, it can be any treaty. Uh, or, I mean, if the treaty has provision uh, that there can be arbitration. Uh, so all, all of you know what arbitration. Arbitration is basically, you know, how uh, you know, conflicts are, resol uh, are resolved uh, through, you know, hearings, uh, through court hearings, and, uh, and finally uh, a decision comes you know, in case of treaties. So, and of course, there are nine, numerous other tribunals. Now, all of you know that several war crime tribunals were formed. You know, you know. Uh, they have been formed after the Second World War. They were formed then after, uh, you know, after the the the, the, the situations in, in the Balkan region. You know, in, in, in the late 90s, uh, there was another uh, such uh, tribunal. So these tribunals are also there. Now, 
So largely these uh, international courts of justice, the Sovereign Court of Arbitration and several other tribunals, uh, these deal with cases regarding uh, international uh, law. You know, what are the cases that can be regarding territory, it can be regarding, you know, just like, you know, a foreign national being arrested, a foreign national, you know, uh, let's say for the allegation that that person is a spy. So, you know, in certain cases you have uh, these type of cases can go to the international justice, there can be also disputes regarding uh, territorial disputes, uh, for instance, a certain island, let's say, uh, who has the authority over that island, uh, these can be discussed in the international court of justice. And of course, there can be uh, financial or trade-related uh, disputes that are there. So, uh, these come under uh, the international law. Now, the question comes, why do states follow international law? States are sovereign, they can not, they can, they may not follow international law if they want, but they largely follow because one of the part is, of course, that there is, uh, it leads to an order. Uh, you know, it, it, the following of international law, it maintains the order and, and, and many a times, you know, maintaining that order because, uh, you know, it, it's more convenient for the states to maintain that order. And also there is, there is the, there is kind of a, you know, it, it has been decided collectively that it is, it's, it's, it's more convenient for everybody if the order is maintained if uh, international law is uh, followed largely because, you know, uh, otherwise, as I told you, if, 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 if treaties are not respected, it, it leads to war. So, you know, uh, rather than going for direct conflict, you know, following of international law, uh, as far as it's uh, feasible uh, to the international interests, uh, states uh, try and follow international law. But of course, uh, in certain cases, especially when we talk about great powers, you know, the major powers, they may not follow international law. I mean, they, they sometimes don't because, you know, if it is not in their, uh, let's say, national interest or in their uh, interest, uh, broadly speaking. Okay, so uh, let's say if we take the example of the People's Republic of China, uh, China always uh, speaks uh, or has been uh, speaking at the United Nations and other platforms about respect for international law and, you know, how international law must be respected by everybody, it must be followed. You know, but when it comes to its own core interests, when it comes to its core interests, it does not pay much heed uh, to the international law. One example would be, of course, uh, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, UNCLOS. I think some of you may be familiar with it. So UNCLOS is basically a treaty for the for the sea. Now, of course, the laws of the sea have been an important uh, area of international uh, law. I mean, uh, since uh, let's say uh, since the 17th, uh, 16th or 17th centuries, uh, I mean, the sea uh, have been an important area of conflict because, you know, uh, the international oceans, uh, you know, uh, they lead to conflicts that who's, uh, who has the right to use the waters, whose ships can sail to where. There are, of course, the sea lines of communications through which uh, huge uh, trade flows happen. And, you know, there are these uh, narrow channels, there are these narrow pathways or the, or the, the seaways uh, through which uh, uh, a huge number of uh, trade flows and if certain state blocks it then you know the whole trade gets blocked so you know there has been uh, this uh, this kind of an international agreement this kind of international convention a custom that you know international seas are you know it's, it's, it's a common public good i mean anybody all states are free to use the, the high seas you know, the, the oceans but just to codify it, the United Nations Convention on the Law of Sea you know, codified the whole procedure and it's a very important uh, law which is respected by all the states. But China has been, uh, you know, 
not following uh, international uh, the UN clause, particularly in, in the context of South China Sea and East China Sea. You know, uh, uh, it, it sort of its its claims are not in uh, uh, consonance with uh, you know that the, the provisions of the UNCLOS, for instance. You know, Broadly, if, if, if I mean, we are having a, a more theoretical discussion, if you want to go into the specifics of the problem, what China does is China has historical claims, and these claims, these are maritime regions, okay? And so uh, China lays historical claims on the, on the, on the, on the seas. So it, it does not follow the present situation. So, you know, in presently, there are these states like Vietnam, uh, Philippines, uh, and, and all of these states, uh, and, and so they have their interests, and you know, they have their, so as per international law, as per UNCLOS, all states have, you know, their territorial waters. They have their exclusive economic zone. The exclusive economic zone is a zone where, you know, you can within the seas, uh, you can, you know, your fishermen, etc. You can conduct, uh, you know, fishing, etc. Basically, economic activities exclusive without letting others enter stuff like that. So, you know, uh, this uh, China's uh, arguments and China's activities. What China has been doing is China is taking, let's say, there is a small rock. And you know what China will do is it will construct an artificial island over it. So it, what what you, you need to imagine is that is suppose uh, from the sea there is a small rock that is uh, you know jutting out. It's, it's not a it's not an island. It's just a small rock. And over that rock, you know, they, they are they are building uh, this uh, huge artificial island. And now using that, they are claiming that this is an island. Now we, we will claim for you know uh, the sea of this and you know exclusive economic zone. So, you know, China's territorial water and exclusive economic zone claims in South China Sea are not consistent with the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea. So, it's, it's largely, uh, you know, so within the UN clause, you know, so international law, you know, in, in, in contemporary times have been very detailed. They deal with the specific uh, scenarios, they deal with the particular cities of the situation. So, you know, uh, there has been a particular uh, mention, you know, you know that uh, how much of you know territorial water or exclusive economic zone, you know, an island might get, a rock might get, and a low tide elevation. Now I'll explain what a low tide elevation is. A low tide elevation is a is kind of a rock or, or a piece of land that that only is only visible when there is a low tide. You know, when there is low tide, and when there is high tide, it gets submerged. So you know you cannot compare a proper island. Let's say you know we have let's say. Let's say Lakshadweep. Lakshadweep is a proper island that India has. Andaman and Nicobar Islands. We have a series of islands. So an island is not the same as a rock. A rock is, let's say, you know, let's say, it's, 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 a, it's a rock. It's, it's not a proper island. It's just a rock, you know, which is jutting out. And so on that rock, you know, China is building this artificial island. It's not a natural island. It's an artificial island, and making the same claims as you know, of a tangible water or economic zone as an island would. So. Broadly, you know, this is the conflict, you know, they are not following or trying to subvert a kind of the UN clause. So, you know, uh, so this has uh, created conflict uh, of China with its neighbors. In fact, uh, you know, the Philippines uh, went to the permanent court of arbitration. Of course, uh, the permanent court of arbitration, it could go, uh, you know, because under the uh, Annex 7 of the UN clause, you have a provision to you know, go for arbitration at a court. And so, the Philippines went to the permanent arbitration, and in this case, the Philippines versus China case. Now, of course, China did not participate and rejected the ruling by the tribunal. Of the now, uh, the judgment was in the favor of the uh, Philippines. You know, the judgment rejected uh, the China's China's so-called historic claims.
So, you know, I would once again, uh, you know, try to sum up the whole uh, discussion about international law. So, international law broadly, the way I have to understand is that the sanction of not following international law is very limited. I mean, the international courts largely do not have the, the power or the authority. Let's say they do not have the sanction, the power, uh, you know, to make their decisions uh, enforceable. Let's say they have the legal authority, they have the legal uh, locus standing, they have all of these things. I mean, legally they are right in you know, giving out their judgments, but you know, if a particular state do not follow them, there's not much they can do, or you know, it's not uh, that much of uh, of uh, value. That much of uh, it doesn't create that much pressure, and particularly for great powers like China, you know, it can conveniently sort of you know, reject judgments by courts. You know, it can just disregard uh, judgments uh, by the courts. Uh, so you know, uh, so international law. I mean, of course, uh, many states follow it, and you know, largely, you know, uh, there is, uh, uh, you know, if for instance, you know, it is important uh, to follow. Uh, you know, judgments by the International Court of Justice, uh, because, you know, all those countries who have uh, signed the UN Charter are, are obligated to follow the judgments of the International Court of Justice. But, uh, you know, again, if they are not followed, uh, there's not much, uh, you know, action that uh, may be taken. Of course, uh, there might be action that the UN can take, but just like, you know, in other cases, we see the UN limited. For instance, when we see, uh, you know, wars happening, we see human rights violations happening, and the UN largely have, you know, very limited uh, role uh, because, uh, you know, it, it is it, it does not have uh, the military power to take direct action. Uh, of course, you know, there is also uh, the Security Council, and you know, people like, uh, you know, countries like China, they have. Uh, you have to also see it in the context of this that China also has a rejoin the UN Security Council. So even if, let's say, uh, because of the violation of uh, the International Court of Justice order or stuff or something like that, if the UN Security Council decides to take action, countries like China can veto it. So, you know, uh, international law is uh, not uh, completely a, a foolproof setup, you know, whereas uh, the judgments or the directives uh, are followed, you know, or they, the states can be made to follow them. But largely, largely uh, these uh, international uh, laws are followed and, you know, these conventions are respected just like, you know, just like, you know, so, you know, you need to sort of, you know, you need to sort of uh, compare and contrast, just like I also gave you the, the example of UNCLOS, the UN plus the United Nations Convention of the Law C and how it is not followed uh, by China. You, you can also take the example of the, the diplomatic conventions that I told you, which are in fact respected by all. So for instance, you know, you have uh, somebody who is uh, most wanted by the uh, United States, you know, sitting in, a, in, 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 a, in an embassy in, in London. Uh, and London, as you know, UK is, a, is, a, is, a, is one of the most important allies of the United States. But you know, there's nothing much you can do. You cannot storm an embassy. I mean, even if you, I mean, you can have all the power, but you know, you cannot storm an embassy because that's something the uh, Vienna Conventions uh, do not allow you, right? Also, I wanted to make a small addition that you know, uh, 
not only the the not only the, the, the diplomats not only the, the embassy even the communications from the embassy to the home country to the sending country cannot be intercepted they are invalid suppose so if say from india uh, from the new delhi the ministry of external affairs of india uh, uh, let's say a, a diplomatic bag is being sent it's called a diplomatic bag or let's say a package or something is being sent uh, to the the embassy of uh, india in let's say in france so in paris you are sending uh, this uh, uh, this bag nobody on the way or in paris can you know stop and search the bag that bag is inviolable so communications whether through uh, you know whether it is some kind of a bag some kind of a package or some kind of information let's say you know an email is going let's say a letter is going these communications cannot be intercepted and not only by the host uh, by the receiving state but no not but not even by third states for instance so if if let's say you know uh, let's say the the indian uh, the messenger from india with with the bag is going uh, let's say from belgium to france now the belgian authorities also cannot arrest that person or take that bag away from so the 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 messenger who is taking or carrying back a message from the uh, home country from the sending country to the ambassador or to the embassy or taking back from the embassy to the sending state he or she cannot be uh, violated i mean he or she cannot be arrested cannot be detained cannot be uh, subjected to any kind of search so this is also provided in the vienna convention so we have broadly today discussed you know the role of diplomacy and diplomacy and international law i hope you will be able to uh, understand this uh, you know as you experience uh, I, i know that previously you also saw the track to diplomatic conclave uh, uh, so uh, you, you as you see the practical aspects of it uh, you will be able to better understand and uh, sort of apply them apply this knowledge uh, to your uh, academic writings etc so uh, thank you thank you mr das for your interpretive address on this very pertinent topic and now i would request the students in turns to ask questions if any you can either unmute yourself or write your questions in the chat box whichever way is convenient for you principle is uh, some principle is uh, what is the principle of diplomacy principle of diplomacy is everything we just discussed i mean uh, principle is uh, the ideas that that govern diplomacy that is you know that you need to respect that you know one principle one important there is only one and one in principle that you represent your state properly that is the principle of diplomacy now this is this is not a very uh, you know you, you, what you can this say is that what is the uh, what is the objective of it See, that would be a better question because principle varies from person to person so if but a general most important principle will be whether you are let's say you uh, in diplomacy is is for everybody right if you asked diplomat but you said diplomacy what is the principle of diplomacy 
a person who is working at the ministry of external affairs in a receiving state is also a diplomat is also practicing diplomacy a person who is a, an ambassador is also practicing diplomacy a person who is a part of a delegation to a to an international organization to a particular state or say traveling with the head of the state is also practicing diplomacy so there is only one principle that you represent you fight for your own national interest so just like a soldier fights for their country a diplomat also fights for their country pushing their country's interests first that is the principal priority of a diplomat okay of course he or she does this in a peaceful way uh, a diplomat is always uh, supposed to look for ways through peaceful means but nevertheless his or her objective is always to further uh, the interests of their nation so that's whatever role you are in as a in diplomacy whatever role you are in you can be say the minister you can be the role you can be uh, an officer in the in the, the ministry of foreign affairs you can be a minister, uh, an officer in the in the embassy your objective is in whatever role you are to push the interests of your particular country so that's that's what a diplomat's job is a diplomat's job is to further the interests of his or her nation Okay, sir. Thank you so much. Does anybody else have a question? Um, I want to ask one question. Um, as you had talked about sovereignty, so I wanted to ask that like, what is the difference between sovereignty and uh, the independence? How are the two different from each other? independence is uh, independence okay so first of all independence and sovereignty are not entirely different they are interlinked but there is a difference independence uh, often leads to sovereignty so independence is the process through which you get sovereignty so uh, for instance if you uh, if you think of uh, certain states which uh, have their independent uh, have their governments uh, have their local government but they don't have sovereignty so we don't say they are independent only when uh, they become independent what they become is the government becomes sovereign for instance even during the british rule there was an indian government uh, let's say if you, if you think of it uh, you know there was a government british government uh, that was called in fact the government of india so you had how else do you say you know that is why there was a government of india act 1935 so there was a government in india but that government of course did not have sovereignty everything that it did had to be approved by the british crown or the british government so it could not do anything that was in contra in uh, you know in, in against the interests in contravention of the interests of the british government so uh, what uh, what the india was doing back then was not following the interests of india but rather the interests of the british government so that is not uh, so when india got its independence what happens was the government of india became an became a sovereign one the, the the indian state became a sovereign state so with independence what happens is your sovereignty is ensured so independence leads to sovereignty sovereignty is sovereignty simply put sovereignty is nothing but your ability to take your own independent decisions just like you know there's this uh, there was a saying uh, there was this controversy when after independence uh, you know india decided to continue with its, with its membership of the the commonwealth many people said why is india being a part of the commonwealth now i also talked about commonwealth what jawaharlal nehru said at that time our first prime minister uh, pandit jawaharlal nehru he said was that uh, being the member of the commonwealth uh, does not make us uh, you know we have no obligation in it it is a member of independent states 
we are also part of it but we have no obligation we are sovereign when it comes to our internal and external policy we are just a member of that grouping but they cannot in any way direct us to do whatever we want so today we are member of commonwealth we may not be member of commonwealth tomorrow we can withdraw whenever we want they are calling us for some event whether you want to participate or not it's our decision so you know membership in 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 any such international organization does not take away the sovereignty sovereignty is your ability to take your own sovereign decisions if you look at uh, the the post soviet space since the organization the foundation works a lot on the post soviet space let me just talk about that a bit uh, so uh, you know after the collapse of the soviet union something called the commonwealth of indians independent states was formed it is called cis commonwealth of independent states so uh, most uh, you know kazakhstan uzbekistan tajikistan all of them were part of the cis but that did not mean that they did not have sovereignty they made their own decisions they made uh, agreements with china they made agreements with the united states they did all of those stuff their foreign policy was not controlled by the russian federation so but they were member of this grouping which showed their ties you know their former ties so that's one thing independence leads to sovereignty and sovereignty is the ability to make your own decisions both internally as well as externally thank you mr das just to, to add one little point so as you explained the sovereignty part does it have any limitations sovereignty is of course limited by international law so your sovereignty is like just like you know just like in 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 the municipal law our fundamental rights are limited by the laws of the country we have fundamental rights but we cannot select like we have fundamental right to speech but that is limited our free speech is not we can say anything you know if it if it leads to warrant a law and order situation the police can arrest right for speech so free speech is not absolute so all of like say uh, free movement free movement is not absolute the police can stop so it is limited uh, by the law and order so similarly sovereignty largely internal sovereignty we can say is largely unlimited internal sovereignty is largely unlimited but external sovereignty is somewhat limited by international law also even internal sovereignty is there is this debate that, uh, you know in certain cases you know just like if you have seen the kind of inter interventions that the west has made western interventions the whole argument was that you know these particular states are uh, committing uh, let's say human rights violations in their own states so you know this is a kind of an intervention to save those people so you know the western interventions that that we called you know establishing democracy you know they say we go and establish democracy so basically uh, the idea is that you know uh, the sovereignty is also limited by human rights so you have to follow human rights so sovereignty if you cannot violate there cannot be cross violation of human rights then also there is this another concept about people's right to self determination so if a particular state if the majority of the particular people let's say a huge majority of the people do not agree with the government they have some other views they so uh, the state cannot you know just continue to you know, sort of uh, push them down using uh, brute force so you know there is a need to take that into consideration but these are not that specific these are in certain instances these have come into forces but so you know by reasonable uh, standards sovereignty is limited uh, by uh, these uh, aspects of diplomacy uh, aspects of human rights aspects of international law so thank you mr das i think we don't have any more questions if anyone would uh, want to ask any questions you can write